All right, uh, you turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Bert. Great job as always. <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. As you can see on the board, we'll be in the second session uh, noting Habakkuk 2.14, which teaches us that the earth, planet earth, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Never has happened in history, and we will be witnesses to it, we'll be a part of it, and it'll be magnificent. And for a thousand years, this will be the case. So uh, that'll be our subject here in the second session, as was, as I pointed out to you in the, before the opening prayer this morning, that uh, this is speaking of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So uh, as we normally do, we, we take uh, pray for this uh, message, the second session, but we're also we're going to take pray for the offering. So uh, with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great honor and privilege that you've given us to uh, express our thanks for what you've done for us through both your Son and the Spirit and our justification now and in the future with resurrection, body, and rewards for faithful service, the millennial reign, the new heavens and the new earth. We'd like to express our great gratitude for your word and, uh, and to obey the command that those who taught the word of God are sure good things with those who teach him. We'd like to obey that command and express our great love for you, for what you've done for us, logistically and the temporal blessings and also the spiritual blessings. And we know that what you give to us financially is uh, yours. The silver and the gold is yours. And so you're the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. So we know that, Father, and we're trying to be good stewards. So we pray that you would accept this offering, which is an expression of our great love and gratitude to you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. I also pray, Father, for this second session that you would work mightily and powerfully through me by the Spirit up and to communicate uh, this passage, communicate it accurately, Habakkuk 2.14 so that your people can uh, hear what the Spirit's saying to the church. I pray, Father, that you'd help your people in the audience to learn, understand, and apply by the Spirit, make application, help them to concentrate and break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening. We know that they tried to stop that from happening. So we just pray, Father, that, uh, that as a result, that your people receive their necessary spiritual nourishment, which will allow them to continue to grow. Uh, and to spiritual maturity, becoming like your son, Jesus Christ, in thought, word, and action. And we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, your son, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll be reading the whole chapter again, and then going back to verse 14 for the rest of the service. It says in uh, Habakkuk 2, 1, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm going to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. The fulfillment of this prophecy. Verse 4. See, he, the Babylonian, is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. And that's a message to Habakkuk and the faithful remnant of Judah at that time. Uh, despite the fact that God is going to discipline his nation severely, uh, they are to live by faith, trust in him uh, and, and, and as they go through adversity. And this is going to be suffering for blessing for them. Verse 5 says, Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant, the Babylonian, and never at rest, because he's as greedy as the grave. And like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him 
with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Will Then you will become their victim, because you have plundered many nations, <clears throat> and the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him! who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they're drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood, and you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes his idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. My translation of verses 13 and 14 on the board. Behold, does it not in fact originate from the decree of the Lord, ruling over the armies, that the peoples are working hard in exchange for the fire of God's judgment, so that the nations are exhausting themselves for absolutely nothing? For the, Lord, for the earth will be filled with knowing the Lord's glory experientially, just as the waters fill the sea. So here, in Habakkuk 2.13, the Lord God of Israel continues his response to Habakkuk's complaint about his choice of the Babylonians to discipline the apostate citizens of Judah. This response will be pointed out in the first session, began in verse 2, and it ends in verse 20. We've just read those verses, verses 2 through 20, which presents the Lord's decision to judge the Babylonian empire in the future for their unrepentant, simple behavior, as we also noted in the first session. Specifically, he will judge. He'll judge them because of their evil treatment of those nations they conquered in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world at the end of the 7th century B.C. and at the beginning of the 6th century B.C. Now we come to Habakkuk 2.14, which is a bit of an interlude, you would think, and it's right in the middle of a tremendous prophecy of judgment for the Babylonian Empire, and as we just pointed out in the last verse, verse 13, all the nations, all the nations are in view here. And so this is a very important verse. It speaks of the millennial reign of Christ. It's actually composed of a causal clause, which is marked by the word F-O-R at the beginning of your translations of verse 14, and it's followed by a comparative clause. Now, we saw the causal clause asserts that the earth will be filled with knowing the Lord's glory experientially, as we'll see. And the latter, the comparative clause, asserts that the waters cover the sea. So this verse, verse 14 is presenting the reason 
for the emphatic declaration implied by the rhetorical question in verse 13. What do we see in verse 13? It emphatically asserts that the Lord ruling over the armies, Jesus Christ, has sovereignly decreed that the peoples of the earth are working hard in exchange for the fire of his judgment so that the nations are exhausting themselves for absolutely nothing, all in vain. Thus, this declaration in verse 13 asserts that the Lord will judge the nations of the earth, not just Babylon, all the nations of the earth, past, present, and future, for their unrepentant sinful behavior. Now here in Habakkuk 2.14, the Lord asserts that the earth will be filled with knowing the glory of the Lord experientially, like the waters covering the seas. This assertion speaks of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on planet earth. And so therefore, the causal idea of this declaration indicates that the Lord will judge the nations because he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth. This is where history's going, people. That's why the Bible says it in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love this world, not the inhabitants. He's talking, he's talking about the world system. Don't get caught up in, the, don't be too tied to your homes, your businesses, your bank accounts, okay? Don't be too tied to this world. It's going to be taken away from you, and it's going to be, you're, or you're going to be taken away from it, and God's going to make this place a parking lot because the world is not the way he wants it on earth. The prayer was, thy kingdom, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Father's will is not being done completely on planet earth, and the Son will see to do, to do that, and he'll do it forcibly by military action, in particular by the exercise of his omnipotence. This is what history is moving toward. All the nations of the earth are gathering together for war. The devil is going to do his thing and God's going to do his thing. And the nations are going to be gathered against uh, Jerusalem one day during the tribulation period. You, you, this is not what's what going on now is just prep, 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 preparatory for what's coming. Okay? All the things that are going on in the nations are just setting the stage for the time when the church is gone and the, the tribulation period begins with Antichrist making a treaty with Israel for seven years and then he breaks that treaty halfway through it and he establishes it and he declares himself as God. He, there's two abominations. One, he's sitting on the cherubim between the, uh, on, on the Ark of the Covenant and the rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem and he's going to declare himself God and then you have false prophet. Revelation 13 talks about this, that he's going to, uh, there's another abomination, he's going to make an image of the beast. Maybe AI will be involved in this, okay? And they're going to worship that. And Jesus says, when you see that standing, see, it's in the plural in the Hebrew. Some of the translations don't bring this out. In Daniel 9, 27, it's in the abominations, plural. So Jesus talks about the one in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, that standing, the one mentioned in Revelation 13. Paul talks about the, the abomination of the Antichrist sitting on the, the Ark of the Covenant in the rebuilt Jewish temple, okay? And he's sitting. Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. So, he does that, and that breaks the treaty. He, it's an inside job. He's there with his army. And this is going to lead to the last dispersion of the Jews throughout the world, and only a small, tiny remnant of freedom fighters will be, pitched, will be in the city of Jerusalem holding off the Antichrist and his armies until Christ comes back in the second hour. And Satan will wage war against the Jewish people to wipe them off the face of the earth because he doesn't want the Jews on this earth to have, so Jesus could rule over it. So God will not be able to fulfill 
what he he's, has uh, said he, he would do in his word. That Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, will rule in Jerusalem bodily for a thousand, year, thousand years as king of Israel and the entire earth, as it says in Zechariah 14. So all, the, so all this stuff is going, we, you know, the, there must be this cleansing of the earth before we can have the millennial reign. So well, this is extremely important that you know that all that's going on is just preparatory. We must go through the tribulation period. Here's the thing. The church, Israel must go through this final 70th week of Daniel, which is going to start with the, when the church is gone. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about this. And then the day of the Lord can happen. And then when the day of the Lord happens, that's the tribulation period. And then the second advent ends it. And then we have the millennial reign. So, but everything is waiting. Stop, don't listen to these people who tell you, oh, you got to, you know, watch it. Yeah, you can watch Israel. And there's a lot of things, indication that it's close because Israel's back in the land 150 years ago. They weren't. No one could see this happening. 2,000 years out of the Here's another indication that the Bible is inspired by God. What other nation in the face of the earth was, God, was a nation in the ancient world 2,000 years ago with geographical boundaries, a central government, and was dispossessed, destroyed, and its capital city and its temple, and dispersed throughout the nations for 2,000 years, and then in 1948, she becomes a nation again? You name me one, one nation that's ever happened to in history. Not one has ever had that, but Israel did. That's the Bible. Look it up. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. The Bible's right there. Israel's a, a, a living witness that there is a God in, in heaven. But they've got their worst time coming. Jacob's trouble, it's called, in Jeremiah. Jacob being the progenitor of the nation of Israel. So they must go through this tribulation because what's going to happen is something beautiful, people. There's going to be 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? 144,000, not the Jehovah Witnesses, okay? They're Jewish. And they will be born again and saved. At the second advent, when Christ comes back in Zechariah 12 and, 13, uh, 12 and 14, talk about this. Paul talks about this in Romans 11, 25 through 27. They'll look upon Jesus, whom they pierced. Who in Jewish history has the Jews pierced but Jesus? And they'll mourn over him. They'll be, it's the day of atonement will be literally fulfilled on the second advent. And you and I will be witnesses to seeing the Jewish people mourning over the fact that their, 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 their forefathers, what they, how, how they mistreated Jesus, crucified him, and have treated him with scorn for centuries. They, their last, they'll run out of hope. There'll be some, the, Satan is on the earth, the wrath of the devil, the wrath of God with its seven trumpet, trumpet and seal judgments, seven, uh, bowls, uh, seven seal and trumpet bowl judgments of Revelation 6 through 18. The devil is cast down to he from heaven in the middle of the tribulation period. Revelation 12 talks about this. And he's going after Israel. Israel will be like out in desperation. There'll be no United States to help him. There's no United States of Europe. He was a traitor. He was a deceiver. He was a false messiah, the Antichrist. Who are we going to turn to? they'll finally finally go to the right one finally and there'll be a national regeneration of the nation of Israel we call it and a restoration of the nation to the land of Israel <coughs> to the land and the land that they will possess is much greater than they've ever possessed they've never even possessed one thirty-fifth of the land 
that God promised them. And we see the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, there's land promises. We call it the Palestinian covenant or the land grant. And they're going to have all the way to the Euphrates River. On that, that'll be the eastern border. And they're going to have the western border is the Mediterranean and up into Turkey and down into northern Africa. That's their land. Who owns the land? God gave it to them. But it won't be till their king comes back that the land will be captured and will be theirs for a thousand years and on into eternity. So this assertion that we have in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, speaks of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on planet Earth, and so therefore the causal idea of this declaration, marked by the word F-O-R at the beginning of your translations, indicates that the Lord will judge the nations because he will establish his kingdom on the earth. And this statement, people, in Habakkuk 2.14, speaks of the future millennial bodily reign of Jesus Christ. This is not a metaphor. It's a literal bodily reign on planet earth since it has never been fulfilled in history that the earth was filled with people knowing the Lord's glory experientially as the waters covered the sea. When in history has that ever taken place? When Jesus was on this earth... Most of the world didn't even know who he was until after he died and rose from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, and the apostles went out, like Paul, went to the Gentiles, throughout the Roman Empire. Then the gospel got into China. They didn't know about Jesus. The earth was not covered with the knowledge of the Lord back then. It wasn't even, it wasn't. So this has never been fulfilled in history. So we see, however, both the Old Testament and New Testament prophesy that he, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, will reign bodily in Jerusalem for a thousand years as king of not only Israel, but also the king over all the nations. Look at, uh, go to, uh, hold your place, go to, uh, go to the book of Zechariah, which you're going to go toward the end of your Bibles, okay? End of the Old Testament. Zechariah, look at Zechariah chapter 13. Uh, excuse me, 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Two of the greatest chapters of, of all time. If you want to know about the, the tribulation period, followed by this, the second advent, the millennial reign, it's in these chapters, Zechariah 12 and 13. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, an oracle. This is, what, this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Not the church, Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him, declares, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Isn't this today? Israel is a problem. Back in the, back in the 1960s, in the Cold War, uh, the, with the Northwood, uh, Northwoods documents that were released, the, the, the Joint Chiefs staff under Johnson and Kennedy and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Eisenhower, they, 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 when they pr pl uh, pr planned for general war, which is, in other words, a, a, a nuclear war, they said if it was going to happen, the Third World War, it would start in Jerusalem and Israel. That's what they said. I don't think it's changed. I don't think that's changed. They're right in the center of the earth. They're also sitting, and this is why Russia, do not turn away from Russia, Russia Ezekiel 38 and 39. The Prince of Rosh, they'll come from the extremity of, of the north of Israel. That's Russia, Moscow. They're going to come right down and they're going to invade. And the Lord will destroy them from heaven. He'll destroy the Russian army and its coalition of nations that will come with it. So Russia is still a player, we see. I believe that's going to happen right at the beginning of the tribulation period. 
Others don't, but it's coming, okay? So you have Jerusalem. I say, I mentioned the Russian thing, because why, Ezekiel 38, 39 tells you why. Because they want a warm weather seaport. They never had one. Here's the other thing. More importantly, what the text says, they want to plunder their riches because Israel is sitting on oil now. Most of the people don't know that. I don't know if many people know that. They got a lot of oil under there. They got all coast. Also, they have in mind all the thing of the Dead Sea area. They're sitting on tremendous amount of wealth, that whole area. And they know, and the world knows it. Russia knows it. Israel is prospered. Look at them. That place was a desert. Nobody wanted it. Oh, they want it now. Those Arab peoples who are being deceived by the devil, of course. Of course they want it. They built it up. They know how to do irrigation. The Jews are magnificent. Why? Because the God's with them. <laughs> he wants them back in the land because he's, he's got this tribulation period. He's got, he's got his word to fulfill. So Jerusalem is still a problem today, and it will be continue to be a problem. Verse 3, on that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, Jerusalem. I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, and I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. Adonai Zabaot, the Lord ruling over the armies. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will, that's the day of the Lord he's talking about. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David. King David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. They'll have supernatural power at their disposal. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And he's talking about the second advent of Christ. You could also say the tribulation period, too, the seven seal, trumpet, bowl judgments, which is, at Revelation 5 and 6 says, is the Lamb's wrath. And I will pour out, verse 10, and this is the, the day of atonement, the national repentance of Israel that's coming. A, when the, in contrast to the first advent of Christ, where the majority rejected Jesus, only a small remnant believed, the second advent will be a totally different story. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. Who in Jewish history was pierced by the Jews? You say, why don't the Jews see this? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 4, haven't you read it? He's blinded their eyes, the devil has, so that they cannot see him. That's the only reason why you and I can see him is because the Spirit lifted the veil. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping of Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of Hadarimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land, it says, will mourn by itself and with their wives and themselves and the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. And it goes on and on and on. And national repentance, national regeneration of Israel. They will change their attitude about Jesus of Nazareth 
who they pierced, their forefathers pierced, and believe in him. Go to chapter 14. Now we're going to talk about the millennial reign in, in, in relation to the tribulation, Jacob's trouble. Zechariah 14, 1 says, A day of the Lord is coming. This is the eschatological day of the Lord. We're going to be doing a series on the day of the Lord in not too distant future. Maybe the next series on Wednesday. We, I don't know. I haven't made up my mind yet. Uh, the Lord will have to decide that and tell me what to do. I've got so many things I can teach you. But a day of the Lord, it's the eschatological day of the Lord. And so it's, a, it's not a, it's just a one 24-hour period. It's a, talking about a period of time which encompasses the tribulation, the second advent, okay? And then you get the millennial reign, new heavens, new earth. That's all eschatological day of the Lord. So here in context, it's talking about the tribulation and the second advent and millennial reign. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. Talking about Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. Again, we hear this being said. Why? Because God wants to emphasize this is what's going to come to pass. And the city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in a day of battle. That's this, he's going to do this with the seven seal, trumpeted bold judgments of Revelation 6 to 18, which Paul, John describes as the wrath of the Lamb. And then the second advent ends it all. On that day, and here's the second advent, because it says on that, his, on, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. At the rapture, he doesn't even touch the earth. He meets the church in the earth's atmosphere. He snatches us out with his power, his omnipotence, his incomparable power, and gives us a resurrection body, and we're in the earth's atmosphere, and we're delivered from the wrath to come that he's describing here. On, his, on that day, his feet will touch, stand on the Mount of Olives. You can go to the Mount of Olives today. Some of you have already been there. It's still there. It hasn't gone anywhere. He's coming back from where he ascended on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to come back and touch this place again. And look what happens. East of Jerusalem, this place resides, Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two when he touches it, when he lands on it. From east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. And you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. And you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him. Holy ones, Hagias. The soul, we talked about in sanctification we're studying. We are the holy ones. The elect angels are. The, the, the tribulational martyrs and resurrection bodies will be there. And the Old Testament saints will be coming. We are the New Testament holy ones. We are the church, okay? The bride of Christ. The Old Testament uh, saints like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're going to be friends of the bridegroom, as John the Baptist said. So we are the bride of Christ coming back with Christ. We are the holy ones. We constitute the holy ones. When the saints come marching in, oh, I hope to be in that number. That's the song. That's where it came from. On that day, there'll be no light, no cold, nor frost. Then I tell you, you're not going to need light. It will be lighting the place up. The greatest light show of all time, not at a Taylor Swift concert, but at a, at a, and not at a Beatle concert or a Jimi Hendrix concert or a Zeppelin concert, but at the, the greatest show on earth will be us and the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. There'll be, because we'll be in our resurrection bodies and rewarded, decorated with rewards. We're going to light the place up. Just our presence. As, remember, remember, Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation groans until the revealing of the sons of God. Are we not sons of God? The revealing of the, of the sons of God when we're in a resurrection body because the curse will be lifted at that time. 
perfect environment, perfect rulership, perfect ruler, perfect millennial government. And we, us in resurrection bodies were helping Jesus govern the world. Yeah, it can't wait. That's why you should be motivated to grow, be an overcomer and grow up to spiritual maturity. Forget about what the world has to offer. They can't give you what God and Jesus is going to give you. You can be an overcomer. Live for the world that's to come. I'm not saying you should forget about your responsibilities, but do your responsibilities as under the Lord. And you can get this too. So, on that day, there'll be no light, no cold, no frost. And then he says, it will be a unique day for the unique, the anthropic person of history, the God and Jesus Christ. It'll be a new, unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there'll be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. The eastern sea, Euphrates, uh, to Euphrates, western sea, Mediterranean. In summer and in winter, he's talking about the millennial reign. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there'll be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. He'll be the only one. He's the only one that matters. He's the top celebrity in, Jude in Christianity. He should be lifted up in our churches, not the pastors or anybody else, not our, not our, our Christian rock groups. Jesus should be lifted up in all that we do because that's what we're going to be doing in the millennial reign. We'll be worshiping him and adoring him and getting to know him even more and more uh, 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 intimately. Go back now, please, to Habakkuk 2.14. <laughs> So Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, as we pointed out, the majority in Israel rejected him during his first advent, and the rest of the inhabitants of the world did not know about him until his apostles and disciples spread the message about him in the gospel regarding the significance of his death, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. Now the reference to glory here is the word kavod in the Hebrew. It refers to the manifestation of the personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to the inhabitants of planet Earth during his millennial reign. Hold your place. Look at Revelation chapter 1. What is that personal presence going to be like? Well, let's ask John. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one, that means happy, is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it, you and I, and take it to heart. Make personal application. Get, adjust your priorities in life. And take it at heart what is written in it because the time is near. It means it's imminent. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, which is now known as Turkey, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's that today, people. He sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting the Father make his enemies a footstool for his feet. To him who loves us, Jesus, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, 
and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds. This is his second advent. And every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn him because of him. Will mourn because of him. So it shall be. Amen. Done deal. God says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we're going to be witnesses. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos where they put the crazy people because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's Day, Sunday, I was in the Spirit, having fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Cyrus, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Compare this with Daniel chapter 10. It's describing the same thing. And Daniel's day, it was, he, was speaking, uh, he was looking forward to Christ. John's looking back at Christ. as a historical fulfillment of this. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, speaking of his purity. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, blazing fire, judgment. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, get ready, I fell at his feet as though dead. I know we like to think of Jesus as our buddy, you know? We're going to give him a hug. I, I think that we're going to be bowing to him. Just think about this. The creator, the one the crucified and rose from the dead, you will see, didn't he show Thomas this and the disciples? You will see the nail prints, and I believe you will see the scars from the face. He's the only resurrection body that will have the scars of his, as a memorial to what he did at Calvary. As a reminder to what we, he did, the sacrifice he made. And that's why we have the Lord's Supper. We observe it every month. We could do it every day, every time we meet if we wanted to. But this is, a, why do we do this? It, pro, it promotes love for him. And with, when you love me, you keep my commandments, John 14, 15. So he fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I was alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Go back now to Habakkuk 2, 14. So Habakkuk 2, 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the, glory of the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And as we just pointed out, the word for glory, kavod, it refers to the manifestation of the personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to the inhabitants of planet Earth during his millennial reign. Now, the word for Lord there is the covenant-keeping personal name of God, and it's used in connection with his covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. Specifically, it's used in connection with Habakkuk's covenant relationship to God. Thus, it also expresses God's sovereignty over not only the nation of Israel or the northern kingdom of Israel or southern kingdom of Judah, but also it expresses his sovereignty over each and every nation on the earth, including our own, America. And he will exercise this authority during his millennial reign on planet earth. The word know, it says what he says in, uh, in, in uh, the, the knowledge, the word knowledge there, 
okay? They actually, it's a verb there. They're translating it, the NIV, as a, as a, um, as a, ver as a noun. It's actually a verb here. It's the word yada in the Hebrew. And this speaks of the inhabitants of planet Earth possessing a personal experiential knowledge of the Lord's glory. And this is indicated by the fact that this word speaks of personally encountering the Lord's glory, i.e. his personal presence, through the process of fellowship with him and being affected by this encounter and that the inhabitants of planet Earth gain a practical wisdom from this encounter and more of the character of Christ. Now, for this to take place, for this personal intimate knowledge, experiential knowledge of Jesus to take place, an experiential knowledge of his personal presence, you'd have to have only regenerate people on the Earth because only born-again people can have this personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his personal presence. <clears throat> Remember this, for this to take place, for what this is saying here in the text, to take place, the inhabitants of planet Earth would have to be regenerated through faith in the Lord as their Savior. Why? Because the scriptures teach that only those who are regenerated, born again, through faith in Jesus, have the capacity to possess an experiential knowledge of our Lord. People will have an experiential knowledge of him during his millennial reign because the scriptures teach that at his second advent, which ushers in his millennial reign, he will order the elect angels to remove from the earth all unregenerate Gentile and Jews. Matthew 25, you also have the passage in Ezekiel when he talks about unregenerate Jews being removed, which only be a small remnant compared to the first advent. Thus, what we see in, during the millennial reign, there'll, be, there'll only be those Jews and Gentiles who accepted Jesus as their Savior and who survived the judgments of the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ. And the scriptures teach people that there'll be a national regeneration and restoration of the nation of Israel at his second advent as we just saw in Zechariah 14. Paul talks about this in Romans 11, 25 through 27. So in contrast to his first advent, where only a small remnant of Jews believed in him, the majority of Jews will accept him as their savior. So therefore, people, both Jew and Gentile believers will possess an experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ during his millennial reign because they will experience fellowship with him and his personal presence, just as his apostles and disciples during his first advent. This personal experiential knowledge will be the result of the instruction that these people will receive personally from the Lord Jesus Christ. I can only take you to one passage. Isaiah 2 talks about this. Isaiah 12, 3-6. Jeremiah 3, verses 14 and 15. Micah 4, 2. He will personally teach the inhabitants of the earth in Jerusalem. We're going to have a Bible class with the Lord. Hold your place real quick. We've got to go to the Lord's Supper. Go to Isaiah. You don't have to go back. back. Just go to Isaiah chapter 2. And then we'll close. Isaiah chapter 2. So Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem bodily. We're there. We're his bride. You got the elect angels there. Uh, you got the overcomer believers of the church age will be ruling over different cities during the millennial reign. Uh, Jesus talks about this in Revelation 2 and 3. You have Old Testament saints and resurrection bodies. The tribulational martyrs are in resurrection bodies. Those who survive the tribulation period and survive the second advent judgments that are still alive, they'll be, that are believers, Jewish and Gentile, they won't receive their resurrection bodies yet. They'll repopulate the earth. Okay? 
So there will be sex during the millennium, it's just we won't be having it, okay? We'll be having something much more uh, exciting. So as Isaiah 2.1 says, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, and we are in the last days, they started with the death and resurrection of session of Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. Okay, so we are in the last days. The New Testament writers tell us this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established, his government. A lot of times mountains in scripture speak of governments and kingdoms as chief among the mountains. In other words, the millennial kingdom of Christ will be the chief of all the kingdoms of the earth during the millennial reign. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will string to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And by the way, with the second advent, the topography of Jerusalem, it won't be embedded in the hills as it is today. It'll be protruded up. It'll be a mountain in which it'll sit. Okay? So the second advent earthquake, which is going to shake the whole earth that nobody's ever seen before, going to totally change the topography of the earth. So it says, they'll say, these peoples of all the, the Gentile believers... Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we will walk, may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, Jerusalem, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not take up sword against nation, for they will not train for war anymore. But in the meantime, we must arm. We must arm because we're at a time of war. So, the statement in Habakkuk 2.13 is actually based upon the prophetic declaration recorded in Isaiah 11.9, which closes Isaiah's description of the millennial kingdom. So, we see that in Isaiah 11.9, it says, they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk wrote this well after Isaiah. Isaiah they wrote this over 100 years before. This prophetic declaration in Habakkuk 2.14 that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord echoes several other passages. Numbers, uh, Numbers 14.21, Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, then we have Psalm 72, 19. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Isaiah 6, 3. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this fulfillment of this prophetic declaration in Habakkuk 2, 14, and these passages that I just pointed out to you, will fulfill one of the unconditional promises of the new covenant, namely... The knowledge of the Lord will be universal on planet Earth. And part of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31 and 34, it says in verse 34, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So as we close and go to the Lord's Supper, we see that Habakkuk 2.14, Numbers 14.21, Psalm 72.19, Isaiah 6.3, 11.9, and Jeremiah 31.34 all reveal that there'll be a final judgment of the nations for their unrepentant, wicked behavior. Why? Because every unregenerate person, unsaved person,
must be removed from the earth and repopulated with regenerate people who obey the Lord in order for the earth to be filled with an experiential knowledge of the Lord's glory. Now listen to me. When you are in fellowship with God, we can experience this fellowship now, this experiential knowledge of the Lord. What's that? Personally encountering the presence of our Lord. We might not see him, but through the Spirit, he's mediating his presence. When you're in fellowship with the Lord, you might be experiencing his presence now as you hear the word of God. The Spirit is mediating the presence of Christ. When you're in fellowship with God through obedience to his word, the Holy Spirit will mediate the presence of the, of, of, of the Father and the Son. So we have this personal experiential knowledge, which is actually eternal life. Jesus said in his, upper, in, in his, in his prayer for the church, in, his seven, John, in the high priestly prayer, John 17, it says, uh, this is eternal life, that they know you, Father. And the word know, gnosko, talks about experiencing an experiential knowledge of God. So what's that mean? If you look at the word experience, it talks about personally encountering someone. So when you're in fellowship with God, you're personally encountering the triune God. And the Spirit enables us to do that because the Spirit's carrying us into the presence of, 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 the, of the Father and the Son as we learn, put into practice His Word. So we can actually experience, carry that personal presence of the Lord around with us everywhere we go. He's already indwelling us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but when we have fellowship, we're experiencing that which is already given to us. So we're already tasting a, li a lot, a, bit, a little bit of what we're going to taste for all of eternity perfectly in a resurrection body. Now we can experience this personal experiential knowledge of the, of, the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through obedience to his word. There's nothing better. That's why Paul could be in prison. That's why the early church could be uh, crucified. Uh, it could be eaten by lions in the, in the forum. They could go through all kinds of hell on this earth. Whatever the devil could dish, dish out to them, they took it and they were content no matter what they went to because they were having, experiencing the presence of the Lord as they were going through all these things. We don't tell me we can't handle whatever crisis comes in our lives or our nation. We can. We have the Lord Jesus Christ with us. He'll never ever leave us or forsake us. So let us go and experience. Let's go into the communion service now. We'll have the gentlemen pa pass out the communion elements and we'll meditate upon the personal work of Jesus Christ, our great God, King, Savior, who's going to reign over this earth for a thousand years and that is personally present in our lives and in the life of this church. So could we have that happen now? Would the gentleman come forward, please? <clears throat>
It's a great thing to be loved by somebody. Husband, wife, parents, children, grandparents, beloved by your country, but nothing compared to being loved by God. Nothing can compare to the great love that God demonstrated at Calvary 2,000 years ago when he sent his son to the cross for us, when we were his enemies, to suffer his wrath. He was asked to be, he was abandoned by his heavenly father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he was separated and abandoned from, by his father, lost the fellowship for those last three hours on the cross so that we might not be separated from him for all of eternity. How much do you think the father and the son valued that fellowship? It can never be, we could not, we could not comprehend it. It's beyond comprehension. What it should cause us to do is give thanks and to really say, well, define ourselves by this love because he did it for you and me. Each one of us individually. Think of you, each one. He did it for me. He did it for every single one of you. That's how much he values you and me and the whole world he did this for. Even people like Hitler and Stalin all the all the, the great criminals of the of history so we have the cup and the juice thank you gentlemen for passing out the elements we have the bread and the juice they represent the person and work of Jesus Christ the bread is unleavened many times in the scriptures leaven is a sign of the presence of evil well Jesus in his human nature did not have the presence of evil in him because his body was not the result of the sexual union between Joseph and Mary, two sinners. But the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary, as it says in Luke 1.37, and also Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, Jesus in his pre-incarnate state said, a body you have prepared for me. So he did not have the sin nature like we have. He is God in the flesh. He's different from the Father and the Spirit and that he is a human being. And he's different from members of the human race in that he's God and without a sin nature and never committed an act of sin. He's impeccable. So he lived a life of perfect obedience that we had no possibly, no, no chance whatsoever of doing because we're sinners by nature and practice. So the, the bread speaks of his impeccable person. He's both God and man. He's undiminished deity and true sinless humanity in one person forever. And he's also, the cup speaks of his finished work on the cross, which is the result of him suffering the wrath of God in our place when we were his enemies. He reckoned that through this suffering the wrath of God, drinking the cup of the Lord's wrath at Calvary, he reconciled us sinners to a holy God. He redeemed us all out of the slave market of sin in which we were all born physically alive but spiritually dead. And he also propitiated, satisfied the Father's justice and righteousness, his holiness, which demanded that sin and sinners be judged. He loved us, so he judged his son in our place. Thus we call it the substitutionary atonement. This wasn't child abuse, as the enemies of Christianity say, because Jesus did it voluntarily. He did it voluntarily because he loves you, and he loves me, and he loves everyone on the face of the earth. And as we said before. He, didn't, he, doesn't not, he does not want anyone to face his wrath during the tribulation period or in the lake of fire forever. He'd rather you have a personal experiential knowledge of himself for all eternity. So Paul says, 
in 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread in remembrance of our Lord. Verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the cup in remembrance of our Lord's death. And then Paul says in verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he says he comes, he's speaking of the rapture of the church, which is imminent, which will trigger the day of the Lord and the events that we have talked about here this morning. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each and every one of your children that are here today that love your word and are here because they want to learn and uh, put into practice the teaching of the Spirit, your teaching. We pray that this le these lessons today would be in the communion service would be a great blessing to your people, giving them, inspiring uh, obedience, inspiring faith, obedience, confidence, uh, and, and encouragement, exhortation to go forward in God's plan. It would in inspire them to see that they have a chance to make a great impact in this world now as we speak. And we know that you have a great plan for planet Earth with perfect peace, perfect government, the curse being lifted, no more war, and just a tremendous thing beyond our comprehension because we've never seen anything like it, Father. But we are operating in faith. We know that this is going to come to pass because you always keep your word. And so help us to go forward in your plan, marching on to victory, appropriating by faith our union and identification with your son, Jesus Christ, and considering ourselves dead to this in nature in the devil's world and alive to you because we're your children and we want to show people that there's an alternative way in this world to live. And more importantly, we want to please you, Father, because we know that those who please you and are faithful in this life till death or the rapture, whichever comes first, will be overcomers and have positions of authority in your son's millennial government. So we're striving to go forward and glorify you in this fashion. So, Father, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Now, if I may, I'll sing us a song and we can get you <coughs> I'm trying it a little differently here. Instead of the slides, because I can't chew gum and walk at the same time. And those, that thing is a little whacked out. I'm not going to say the, the, angel, the fallen angels are messing with it, but that sounds ridiculous. But, yeah. but uh, <clears throat> and I don't have a twitchy foot either, so don't tell, don't tell me that. <laughs> now this song, as you see the lyrics on the board, and hopefully you're not too blind, and uh, it's, I know we can't vote for Jesus. It's just what, I, what I'm trying to say in the song is, at the end of the day, don't put your faith in political leaders. Put your faith in the one who rules over the political leaders and overrules them and also has their hearts in his hand. Remember that. All right. Sweet.
switched on the TV today. There was no surprise, just the same old thing. There was war and crime, sex and drugs, and greed like I've never seen. The more I watched, the more I got mad as the talking heads kept babbling on. But then a man came on, he spoke so nice, he said he's gonna make this world a better place. He's gonna give us peace, give us our money, be our friend, and give us all some peace of mind, yeah. Yes. 